crisis is a moment of expectation and decision. And until you have reached that point when you have a decision on how to move forward, then you still have the crisis. It's not clear where to go in distinction from, from so many problems that arise all the time without us calling them a crisis. Crisis has this kind of inbuilt concern for the future into it, and it carries an expectation about some, some kind of improvement. And one of those who articulated this most was Immanuel Kant, who had a very nice formulation about that. He talked about how the expectation of the future must also have uh, what he called a moral request. It was a moral request on what was coming after. That should sort of address the real problem. You couldn't just return to the problems you had before. And I think that is precisely what is happening now. You have this kind of moment where things are a little bit in the balance. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this second episode of this podcast, we continue to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. This time, we have invited Sverke Sölin, Professor of Environmental History at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, and from August, also a long-term fellow at SCAS. In this episode we will hear more about the effects of this pandemic on our society. In the last few months, we have seen and experienced a lot of changes, both in our everyday life and in politics, and most likely we will not get back to business as usual once the pandemic is over. According to Sverke Selin, a crisis also provides a window of opportunity for change, and that is exactly what we are going to talk about. So, welcome Sverke Selin to Skas Talks. You are with us via Zoom, but I hope that the sound will be okay. Could you say a few words about yourself to start with? I work at the Royal Institute in Stockholm uh, in the Division of History, where we specialize in the history of technology, history of science and environmental history. And we also started some eight years ago, we started something called the Environmental Humanities Laboratory which has been a very successful addition to the repertoire of the division. And we also run something called the Post-Humanities Hub. Okay, so from August, you will also be associated to SCAS as a non-resident long-term fellow for the program of Environmental Humanities. So can you just tell us a little bit, what are Environmental Humanities? What do you do? To begin with, it's in it's the humanities. Uh, it's an interdisciplinary humanities focusing on things to do with environment, basically. And uh, that is nothing new, of course, although the more recent push in that direction started about a decade ago. The concept came up very forcefully then and has been very vibrant and dynamic since then. But the, the roots to this go further back. There were quite a number of humanities disciplines and subfields that started doing uh, environmental research or environmentally related research around 1970, perhaps, and then the 80s and 90s, this grew. One major stream that became part of the environmental humanities was the so-called eco-criticism in literature studies. And also 
historians and philosophers, they started environmental history, environmental philosophy. And you can say that environmental humanity is kind of an aggregation among these pretty multiple approaches. So the environmental humanities is this aggregation and also a way of gaining force for the humanities in a, in a moment historically with climate change and many other environmental issues becoming increasingly aggravating to actually respond to the crisis. I think it's also a, a matter of aligning with the challenge agenda in research policy over the past 10, 15 years, whereas in the past, humanities tended to be a little bit marginal to these kinds of initiatives. This time, in the last decade, I think the humanities have taken a more central and activist position and responsive and perhaps also responsible position of which the environmental humanities is a manifestation. My own background is from the natural sciences, and I have a feeling that the humanities are more and more coming forward even in those areas. Is that correct? Yeah, I think the collaborations, it's a very interdisciplinary field. First of all, it is interdisciplinary across various boundaries within the humanities, but it's also very much an outreaching, contact-seeking kind of humanities where, where not least the sciences are very important. And one, one, one area where this has been very strongly coming to the fore is the discussion around the concept of the Anthropocene, where um, the geosciences and the humanities and, and also the social sciences have very much joined hands in, in efforts to establish a new understanding of the, well, of many things, actually, of, of the human predicament, the, uh, the kind of impact that human societies and humans do to the planet on a, on a geological scale. Also, boundaries, I suppose that's where the post-humanities come in, the boundaries between what is human and what is non-human has also become more and more blurred here. And that's a discussion where I think the contributions come both from the sciences and from the humanities. So that, yes, indeed, there's a lot of growing collaboration between humanities and science. And we have invited you to this podcast to talk about the corona crisis and how this crisis can change society the long run. So the overall question of this podcast is hopefully get to some sort of answer. How do you think we should use this window of opportunity that this crisis has given us? And how can this help us to solve other problems in the long run? But I hope we get there. So we can start not from the beginning, but with a recent event. You published recently a book which is available for free online. And this book is a collection of texts about different crises that Sweden has gone through in the past few decades. And in the beginning of the book, you describe a crisis as a window of opportunity to make changes. Can you explain this a little bit? What do you mean with that? I take my point of departure in, in what is a fairly well-known phenomenon, namely that major crises tend to go hand in hand with major social change. For example, um, the end of feudalism in, in Europe was very much linked to the, the Black Death in the 14th century, which shook up societies in such a major way that societal innovation was made possible. Certainly, the, this major disease uh, epidemic wasn't the only reason, but it was somehow coinciding in ways that were less than just a coincidence. And... Um, uh, you could look at, for example, the European expansion into uh, the overseas territories in 
what came to be known as the Americas, for example, and Australia and other places overseas, they brought disease, they brought new plants and animals. They created deep crisis, you could say, in, in, in those areas of the world. And that led to major change. And it also, like a boomerang, came back to change Europe as well. So, and you could cite in the literature, there's many examples of this. And in, even in recent times, you find this pattern, I think, although the closer you get to your own time, it's harder to see, perhaps. But in this book, I mention as one of the examples of crisis in the early 1990s was the economic, the financial and, and economic crisis that Sweden had at the time, particularly growth of the public sector had gone very far. There was a sluggish economy and commission was uh, put in there to, to look at this in the late, in late 1992. And uh, in March 1993, their report came with very radical and far-reaching, basically uh, market liberal public choice inspired ideas of how to transform the Swedish economic system. And much of that was actually carried out in policy. This was a crisis. And in that moment of crisis, ideas that had been concocted in the 1970s and 80s and early 90s, neoliberal public choice ideas could be used as a response to the crisis and turned into a reform program. And the kind of resistance that had been to these kinds of ideas before somehow broke down in the crisis. So even in this, you could say, smaller scale and local or national crisis context, you find the same pattern, that change is becoming possible. Whatever you think about the change, you may think it was a not so good thing, perhaps, that 90% of the Aboriginal population in the Americas was eradicated by disease from Europe. Of course, that was a, we can also have a different opinions about whether neoliberal ideas was a good idea as a solution over the coming decades in the early 90s. But what I think it is empirical, it is an empirical fact that in these moments of um, crisis, things can be done that couldn't be done otherwise. And now since a couple of months, or actually for the whole of this year, 2020, we have lived with the coronavirus and the consequences of it. And one is, of course, that people get ill and need um, health care and the hospitals have been trying to keep up their good work. But we also have seen other consequences, like we haven't been able to travel in the same extent. Uh, some, A lot of countries have had quarantine and so on, and we're seeing quite a lot of changes already in our everyday life. So having this crisis now and moving forward, what changes can we make after this? So, uh, of course, then we talk about the future, so we, we don't fully know. We actually know very little about what, what's going to happen. And, and I think if you listen to the voices in the debate, they tend to be either um, very pessimistic. We're probably looking at a, an economic downturn for a while. We may be looking at, um, well, not only health issues, but also maybe destruction of certain vulnerable societies. You may also be looking at very particular um, disruptions like for example will civic society sports clubs and so on for the youth be viable in five years from now will they perhaps be so shocked from this that they start working less less well then what might be the impact on coming generations you can always identify risks and problems and they should be taken very seriously but there is also a growing discourse and that's i suppose where my book comes in 
that I've been really trying to rather see it in a, in a different way to to rather think about the perhaps most major crisis that we face today as humanity in every nation is the um, climate and environmental crisis, which in turn are related to other crises, but they, that it forms a kind of a mega mega crisis situation because it isn't resolved. There are various ways to try to achieve transitions, and that discussion has been going on for a long time, how to change, transform societies so that we can lower the consumption of energy and change the sources of energy, and also to, um, to make uh, both consumption and production, well, let it happen with less emissions and so on. And every aspect of society is somehow related to that. It's not just something that for the technology sector, the energy sector, the transport sector, it's all sectors combined. If that's going to happen with a growing world population, which will in a couple of decades reach 10 or 11 billion. And I conceive of that as a, as a moment, not only of crisis, but also as an opportunity of, of, of a major transformation of life on earth, you could say, and societies would change. And then I would rather say that depending on how the current pandemic and its crisis is being managed, we can actually improve opportunities to achieve a transformation. And I think the word to talk about that is acceleration. You could look at the, the, the crisis, although very tragic and harmful in many ways, as uh, opening up opportunities to accelerate transformation. And one of the ways to do that would be to look at, um, at public investment. And we see now a very a much more open attitude, public investment in than we've seen in for many years. It's because to save jobs, to save companies from going bankrupt, and to basically save society. But from the more immediate rescuing of saving society, you need to turn over the longer term into into saving over the long term, and then uh, I think uh, that creates opportunities for investments and using both public and private money to achieve the transformation goals. How big is the interest and the willingness to actually do so, do you think? Uh, I think there is quite a bit, actually. Uh, I think the most pertinent example to see how the issue is actually addressed along those lines is the um, uh, interest in the European Union to, first of all, which was before the pandemic, to create what what they call a, a European Green Deal which would address climate and environmental issues on a big scale. But then the um, recovery program that has now been, is now being discussed in Brussels and among the EU member countries, uh, massive uh, investment programs and support schemes, also with new financial mechanisms to mobilize the funds and actually boldly suggesting new ideas of new mechanisms for, for actually transferring First of all, Europe borrowing money on the market and to give long-term loans to, um, to certain countries that have, have been particularly affected and even, even support them with direct uh, funds. And in the design of these programs, environmental profiles, at least as far as I understand these uh, initi- this initiative, are very frequent. They come up in in almost every every aspect of this massive funding effort. And I think this is a good example. And what will happen in each and every country, I, I don't have a kind of overview, but I think there is quite an interest in the international discussion about this that I follow to some extent. You see 
a lot of excitement of, of thinking about this because the opposite would be very much counter to what many countries already have committed to. There are many countries now, including the European Union, of course, that have committed to lowering their carbon emissions. And many countries also have taken programs to achieve zero emissions before the middle of the century. And some are even suggesting that could happen by 2040. So Sweden has 2045 as a time limit. If you think the opposite, namely that we don't need to do this now because we need to save and return to what we had before. If that is on the top level of the agenda, it simply will not be possible to reach those goals. And I think there should be a good good understanding for this. And also because there is a growing, I think, a growing interest in industry to actually go down that road. They were, if you go back only 10 years, they were less convinced in most countries, including Sweden, that this was actually something that was should be prioritized. But that has started to shift pretty decisively. Uh, I would rather bet on, on a more optimistic approach. And in that regard, I'm also seeing the willingness to invest and, and basically to spend <laughs> as a positive sign. We need to invest and to spend if we are to reach the ambitious climate goals. In one of the texts, you also write about that we have to find a new way forward where a way has not been paved out yet. How do we find this way? How do we know how to do it now? I think we don't know. Uh, <laughs> nobody knows. I think that is what wayfinding is about. It is about searching and probing and testing. And that is, again, something that is designed to navigate into a future that is unknown, but where we, we need to, um, to find something that, was, that is better than, it, than where we were before. And in, in this book, and I think also more on a more general level, I think I've been very much interested in reflecting on the very concept of crisis. Why do we use this word? And I think there are basically two uses here. And one is a more, so to speak, calculable crisis. A crisis is when things are so bad that we should call them crisis. And that could be somehow measured. And we very often refer to an economic crisis as the template for this. If growth is down and below zero even, unemployment rates go up, these kind of indicators of crisis are there, then we have a crisis. And then, of course, the, the ambition is to somehow get away from that bad place and, and get back to the good place we were before, where there was growth and there was not much unemployment and so on. But I think the word crisis, in fact, if you follow it, and I've tried to do that, follow its historical roots and developments, you find that it's very much linked to the birth of modern societies. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries in Europe, there was a broad discussion about a then current crisis, of which, of course, the French Revolution was the largest of all crises. And people pondered on this, where, where is this going to take us? And for a while, this, mo this um, question was unresolved. And the crisis was not just that the situation was very dire and serious. It was also the fact that nobody knew what was going to happen. The crisis is a moment of expectation and decision. And until you have reached that point when you have a decision on how to move forward, then you still have the crisis. It's not just that things are serious and, and problematic. It's also the fact that it's not clear where to go in distinction from, from so many prob problems that arise all the time without us calling them a crisis. Crisis has this kind of inbuilt concern for the future into it, and it carries an expectation about some, some kind of improvement. And one of those who articulated this most was Immanuel Kant, the 
German or Königsberg-based uh, philosopher who had a very nice formulation about that. He talked about how the expectation of the future must also have uh, what he called a, a moral request. It was a moral request on what was coming after. That should sort of address the real problem. You couldn't just return to the problems you had before. And I think that is precisely what is happening now. You have this kind of moment where things are a little bit in the balance. And some just want to understandably return to the relative stability that was before. And some would even go further. They are very conservative, reactionary in the sense that, for example, if you look at the, the fossil fuel-based countries, uh, we have Poland in the east of Europe, we have the United States, we have Russia, we have countries in the Middle East who really do not want to leave the fossil-based regime. They want to stay there. But the rest of us, we are the large majority now, want to get as quickly as possible out of this. And certainly, of course, every country has oil companies and, and so on. These forces who want to sort of stay the same. And you find that in politics too, there are certain elements on the political spectrum where a particular kind of lifestyle linked to the old fossil regime wants to stay there and return to that position, whereas others, and actually I think now the majority, tend to look at the, the current crisis as actually an opportunity, a moment to take major steps forward to leave that position, which will inevitably also create political tension. People are fairly united when the crisis is acute, as it has been now for several months. But as we are leaving that stage and moving more and more towards real, real world decisions about what was going to happen in the future, how to invest, how much to invest, how much to use and increase public spending, for example, we will see political tension coming up around this. But th that tension was already there in the past. It's just going to be more visible and aggravating now. And I think developments in the current weeks and months, including this riots and turmoil and protests in the United States, is not just about racism. Uh, I think it carries with it questioning of fundamental traits of U.S. policy, including the way uh, the Trump administration clutches to um, supporting fossil-based industries and trying to sort of put as much friction on progressive development as possible. So when the crisis is here, it has various and manifold kind of manifestations and representations, and it clusters issues that have been before the crisis been separated and belonging in different discourses, they tend to glue together into a kind of a, a super crisis kind of situation, which I think raises fundamental questions about, we may call directionality. What sort of direction will future societies have? Talking about the United States, I read somewhere that uh, the United States is a patient with a lot of underlying diseases right now, that uh, things things are really showing up, but the other problems that have been there already. And I think that's also, I guess that's also true for the other countries, but for United States, it's a little bit more obvious. We can really see this now, especially with the riots, but also with the bad health insurance and which people are most affected by the pandemic and so on. So I guess that connects to what you just said about the underlying problems in a society. Yes, clearly. Yeah, I, I fully agree. They used to talk about Europe's sick man in the political history of Europe, but maybe the world's sick man is increasingly becoming the United States. I also think it's an observation to make in pandemics, but also in other crises, almost any crisis, what you always find is that the, the most vulnerable people in society are the most hit, the hardest hit. 
And um, I think that is part of also the, the kind of reaction that we see in the, in the United States. People are simply fed up with being those who did not get any advantages from the development over the past several decades. There's been a tremendous, or if not a tremendous, or at least a solid economic growth in the United States over a long time. And some decades, like the 90s, for example, were extremely economically successful. Uh, at the same time, if you look at the, the sort of distribution of wealth in the U.S. society, it hasn't improved the slightest bit. I saw just the other day figures of um, capital accumulation, for example, public uh, holdings of, of money and other values. And those are extremely unevenly distributed across the black-white border. The black population in, in the U.S. has been more or less on the same level of poverty since 30 years. And that's true also for parts of the white, lower middle class and the working class. So behind this is an enormous frustration. And uh, it's just a matter of, of the moment when it breaks out. And I don't think it is a coincidence that it breaks out in, with this tremendous force in the pandemic situation. It reinforces it even more. And we even see in Sweden that some of the most affected groups are the ones living in the suburbs and who are socioeconomic weaker. Absolutely. You, you, could, you could and should use social uh, and economic geography to explain this pattern. And I think the more general truth to draw from this or the learning you make, you make uh, the lesson you learn is that it's patterns that are already there that determine the outcome of, of crises and particularly pandemics. Those things you, you did in the past, and even more so perhaps the things you did not do in the past, you should have prepared differently. And that has been, I think, very visible in the Swedish case. Again, I think going back to these reforms in the 1990s, which also segregated or even fragment, I shouldn't say segregated, but fragmentized the healthcare system and also the elderly care service units and so on. They were basically run by public institutions before, and there was a certain view of taking responsibility for the long-term provision of, uh, of equipment and medicine and, and all of this. We had only one sort of chain of apothecaries that was a public one. It had its drawbacks, not obviously, but some of the advantages with that system became visible now only in the crisis, because now we saw that nobody took that responsibility. When you fragmentize the system, nobody's prepared to pay. And even the state has been pretty confused in this situation. And Sweden is always compared with Finland in this regard, because Finland kept much of those, a sort of a Cold War mentality when it comes to provisions, which serve them very well in this particular crisis, and Sweden not so well. Yes, because historically we have been prepared in Sweden for a lot of different things, and partly due to the Cold War and the threats of that. That level of being prepared has been reduced a lot, as you just said, and now we realize we should have kept it. How can we be better at this in the future? How can we build up the same level again? I think that's going to be part of the discussion now. I'm old enough to remember, really, those discussions in the early early to mid-90s when not least economists were saying, you know, we, we have free trade, we have open boundaries, we have globalization, we shouldn't have any production that is particularly costly here in this country of, for example, foodstuffs that they produce more, uh, more cheaply in Southern Europe. We can always import things. We can do that just in time. But that kind of philosophy and thinking about, it's a little bit kind of a sunshine philosophy. You, it works when it's with a nice weather and everything works smoothly. As soon as things go bad, it doesn't function as well. So I think we shifted from one 
mindset, the Cold War mindset, very stiff, very squared, very slow in a sense, to a, to a full, full blow over to the very opposite side. And, and Sweden, I think, took a very radical position there. I think, again, because of the economic crisis in the early years of the 1990s in Sweden, Sweden was prone to go further than most other countries. We became, in a sense, more vulnerable. We're still, of course, a very powerful nation in in terms of level of knowledge, level of technology, uh, various uh, social institutions are strong and so on. So we still cope reasonably well with stress. But I think this crisis has reminded us that we're certainly not best in class over time. And part of the reason, I think, is that we are extremely prone to always be best in class in terms of being the most modern. We should always adopt the new ideas and move to the future. We did too in the, in the 90s, but those ideas were not always very helpful. They, they created more, sometimes more problems than they, than they solved. But it takes uh, maybe a decade or two to realize what these problems are. But we've seen it before in the school system, for example, where also the whole big, big debate about new public management. But I think all of these, let's call it with quotation marks, neoliberal reforms, of the late 20th century will now be brought to the table and discussed in more actively. Some of them will probably remain. Some of them, some of these ideas were probably pretty good and valuable. Others will go and, and new ideas will come to the fore. And I think in that particular process, which is partly going to be informed by science and scholarship, so evidence-based, but it's also going to be political. You need both. It cannot be separated fully. If we play the cards right, I think that is precisely the kind of discussion that can accelerate our chances to reach the goals we have set for ourselves to achieve sustainable societies. Because after all, we're in the agenda 2030 decade, actually, starting this year, starting with this pandemic. And I think, although this has been very tragic, in a sense, I'm not metaphysical. <laughs> you can see it as a kind of a signal from some higher power that actually, yes, if you have a, should have a chance to succeed, in this agenda 2030 decade, you needed this kind of shakeup to um, think far-reaching enough and deeply enough to, to make the changes. Then, of course, to hammer out the actual reforms, the kind of new incentives you need to create, the, the, the reforms to, to actually operationalize this, this overarching idea, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of political discussion. And you see also now how established political actors, it's not just new movements that come up, they are there too, but you also see more established political parties and organizations reset their sites, reshuffle their cards in order to deal with a new situation. Only yesterday, I think it was the major right-wing party in Sweden, the Moderaterna, sort of a liberal conservative party, more conservative now than they were 10 years ago, clearly, but basically they're a traditional right-wing party. Their youth organization is now uh, putting up a new program and claiming in a big op-ed article yesterday that it's time now to think seriously about climate and environment because they didn't really before. They were, they were uninterested. That was, the market solves these things, but they don't think that anymore. They need to take a more active position. And I think also that they would um, actually have the article here right beside me. They also want to look, look at, uh, for example, education. In, in new ways, and maybe those most far-reaching uh, neoliberal dreams of how to solve educational issues that were in sway in the 1990s, they have been put to the test now for 20, 25 years. And what they did produce, uh, they produced some good things, but they also produced segregation, more segregation than we want. 
So in a sense, also you can see this as a collective learning, but what I'm saying is that under normal circumstances, change is often incremental, it sort of goes slowly and so on. Pandemics put things to the test and make, make things acute and um, can, can accelerate uh, changes. However, we should also remember not all changes will come for the better. Certain countries use this to, for example, clamp down on their populations, to restrict uh, public rights and freedom of speech. And uh, uh, we've seen such tendencies in many countries. China has been one example. We see it in Hungary. We see also new ideas popping up for, for new ways of um, monitoring and surveilling populations, face recognition, uh, uh, various ways of tracing our, our, our how we move on the web and so on to basically control population. And several scholars have pointed already to the dangers of this, how it can easily be accepted during a crisis, but then how it is not so easy to get rid of it after the crisis to actually go back. So that is, of course, what fuels some of the more pessimistic lines in this in this discussion. I tend to be on the more optimistic side, as you figure here. But I can see also the points that are raised on the more skeptical side. Since you mentioned education, let's talk a little bit about that. I was thinking about this Swedish word Bildnings, education, the right uh, translation for that, or what would you say in English? Yeah, I think education is uh, is one word to use. It's it's a little bit hard to translate this. It's also a German word, isn't it? Bildung which has a broader meaning than uh, other words you could use to talk about how you learn. Uh, building is also building is also about a kind of general, broader education to make you uh, develop as a citizen. And it's also, um, as I try to argue for several years and in a book that was published last year, particularly on this concept, also one could think of it as a more collective learning, the things we need to know together in a society in order to make that society functional, which again, isn't so far away from what we just talked about, how to manage a crisis and how to set our sights on, on noble and appropriate goals for the future. You need to know certain things in order to take the right way. You asked about wayfinding, how to find the right way. Of course, you must have some knowledge to approach such a question. You, you couldn't just uh, go on your impulses. And that requires also one thing that is extremely uh, important, which is the public sphere, pluralism in the public sphere, various places to go to and to discuss and to, to have exchange with you know, opinions and ideas with other people. That has become increasingly a problem with the social media may on the face of it seem uh, as, a, as a contribution to that, but in reality, it has created very much polarization. So again, a failed promise in a sense, and we, we need to take this seriously. And I think the Bildung concept is a way, is a kind of a steering rod here, is to think about not just training for getting individual knowledge that can create, build your career, which of course is necessary for every human being in a modern society, but also to provide an education that, that creates a broader base for people to engage as citizens and to be part of that um, democratic discussion to reach those goals and to also support ideas that, that can do that, that can really support that. And I think Part of the problem, again, with the United States is that, is that that kind of general education is very weak. We know quite a bit about that. For decades, there's been studies of the level of general awareness and general knowledge in the United States. It's 
very large parts of the population very low, very low compared to, for example, Europe. And that is a, a bad recipe in a sense if you if you want to lower risk and lower vulnerability in a society, and, and in particular if you want society to take a sound and right direction. So in a sense, you could say that 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 kind of context is is necessary to to know uh, if you want to understand the phenomenon of of the current president of the United States, a feature like that, a, a guy like him, would be hard to actually conceive of in, in, in most uh, European countries these days and also with the European experiences that we have. So you need the right knowledge and education to also take responsibility um, as a citizen. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think we, we need not just to think about that as a kind of a personal project, the personal building, which is very much an element of the 19th century understanding of building when it was articulated and formulated, not least by German thinkers, but as it has developed the kind of society and the situation we have today, I think it's even more important to consider within an era of polarization, the building and common knowledge is a way of moving, it's a counteract to polarization, to try to build bridges between different groups in society, different tribes, if you like, that increasingly tend to stand very far apart. And they, in a sense, create the truths that suit themselves to explain their particular uh, way of looking at society. This is okay for religion, for example, because that's somehow kept apart from what we call knowledge. And that, that's fine. People can believe in whatever God they want. But they cannot make any claim about, they shouldn't be able to claim anything about society. We need to some, have some order in that kind of understanding. Otherwise, we cannot rationally, as societies, and to deal with the challenges we have. And certainly in, in crisis times, we have big challenges. And so in that regard, knowledge is not just something that we need in order to get a job or a good salary. We need it. We badly deal in need it as a society, to make sure that we keep together also, in a way. Yes, I was thinking about that. You mentioned that we should feel as a collective, as a part of society. And, and that brings me to another part, and that is this whole pandemic has quite influenced also how we act collectively. Like We have um, now been practicing social distancing for a couple of months, and some people have been isolated. In some countries, there have been quite harsh quarantines, but even here, the elderly and the risk groups have been encouraged to isolate and keep to themselves and not meet too many people. How is, does that affect people, actually, in that? and especially how does that affect society and the feeling of belonging to something, being part of something? Yeah, so it's really perhaps not my expertise, but I, I've also been a COVID patient myself. I was sick in March and April for four weeks, and uh, there's been also a period of recovery that has been a little bit, uh, well, it takes some time. Although I was not the worst suffering, I was never really, I visited hospitals a few times, but I was never considered sick enough to be put into the hospital. And I can say I was, of course, then isolated, completely isolated for about four weeks. And uh, it is uh, an experience really to not see a person in the face and certainly not to touch anybody, to have things delivered to your door and uh, not be able to go out and shop yourself and uh, even take a walk in the park. After all, I didn't want to walk because I was in bed most of the time. 
it's an experience. And, and if that is prolonged, as it has been now for many parts of Europe and big, big populations have been facing this for several months, it gives you this appreciation of the everyday life that you were used to, but you didn't think about how good it was actually <laughs> until it's taken from you and you have nothing to can nothing you can do. And I think maybe it makes people it should make people more humble. I think we have been caring also for each other a bit more than usual. We have also been thinking about how we lead our lives at what speed, so to speak. And I, I think there is is a questioning of, of things going too fast now. And maybe, for example, travel. I'm of the opinion that it will take quite a while, actually, until travel, particularly air travel, will come back to its the position it had before. Not that it's a desire to get there, but certainly some of it, and quite, quite a bit of it, will bounce back because it is pretty necessary, some of the travel. But not everything is. And people will, I think, discover other, other ways forward. That's part of also what I mean by wayfinding, is that it is a link between the personal or household wayfinding and the wayfinding of society. There must be a resonance between you couldn't You couldn't do anything politically unless people follow you and, and think it's a good idea, by and large. And, and also the other way around, by, by doing things as an individual in certain ways, choosing not to eat so much meat, for example, or maybe no meat at all, or, or be, be more, so to speak, selective in, in your travel and try to think a little bit more about to how to take responsibility in your own life, that sends a signal to politics and say, maybe, maybe people don't like the things they wanted 25 years ago. They, they want new things and they would be more in line with the kind of sustainability goals that we have set for ourselves. Or at least I hope for such a development, but that cannot be, I think, described in full detail about the future. It, it, is, a, it is, after all, a political and democratic discussion that needs to be held about this. Social distancing is, of course, no virtue. <laughs> uh, I think rather social closeness, even intimacy, is better. You hear each other better, you, you listen, you care, you, a certain closeness, I think, is the, the way to do it. You couldn't, for example, console a person or, or, or support somebody if you're just shouting across the yard. <laughs> you need to show your empathy, you need a certain empathetic body, in a sense. The body is important there, and, the, and I, I certainly hope that we very soon can give up this uh, social distancing and but there's many other things that I think we should take to heart from what we have learned in this crisis. And when I was sick and was still able to read a little bit, I, I tried reading in full, actually. And I succeeded, more or less, to read all the almost 1,000 pages of Victor Klemperer's diaries from the 1930s and the war years, and being then uh, sort of basically locked up in Dresden in a, in a building. They could go out, but they, in fact, could not do it so often for for 12 years and uh, the, the kind of experiences that he suffered and the hope that they've still hung on to and the day of freedom when they actually it was the war was over and it was all all over the, the kind of uh, release a sense of release and um, it's something that i think we should uh, we should also take part. many people have read uh, la peste by uh, albert Camus. And it's been a new translation out in Swedish also that has stimulated the interest, I think, further. It's, of course, also on the upside of this that people have, <laughs> have had the time to read books and, and maybe use them as to reflect, uh, more reflex. I think a more reflexive mode has come over us. And I think also when I talk about this transition, transformation side of things, 
to reach uh, sustainability goals. My sense, it's a little bit more on the personal side. I'm no systematic analysis of this, but I sense that people who were fairly distanced from these kinds of ideas and didn't take it very seriously before, and even may have been hostile to the kind of uh, new priorities you need to make, perhaps on the economy, for example, that they are now a little bit more listening, that they're actually this is something, after, well, after all, <laughs> maybe we can do this. If that can take us out of this mess, probably a good idea to be more sustainable. We may even scale down a little bit on, on the economic growth, or if that is necessary, if we can only get a little bit more security. So I think how societies change and how societies think uh, as collectivities, as we know that, that we know from history, that societies have thought about the future, about what, what is important, very, very differently. And that's not going to go away. People will still change their way of thinking and behaving. The only thing we need to find out is how they're going to change. And of course, as scholars and as thinkers, we have an influence on this. That's part of the mission of knowledge, actually, is to produce knowledge and to use knowledge and put knowledge in circulation in ways that affect people. Otherwise, there'd be no point, I think, in having scholarship. And I'm pretty happy, by and large, pretty happy with the kind of discussion we've had at least in Sweden, and I think in many other countries too, over these few months of serious crisis now, we have been, we think, I think, better now than we did three months ago. We're more informed. And there's a lot of discussion also. A lot of uh, scientists and scholars, as you say, have taken the stage a bit more and are more active and visible and talking about their work. Yeah, we know a lot more about disease also, about epidemics in particular, about viruses. And we, we also realize that, that scientists don't know everything all the time. They learn too. They've learned very, very much. And they, of course, didn't know very much about this virus three, four months ago. They have had to change their mind often several times in a very short period. So in a sense, this is a fast forward kind of version of how science works. But usually it takes many, many years, even decades. But here you can see it's like fast forward and also the fighting, the, uh, the disagreement, but also the rapid, by and large, over the long term, you, you, you know more now than you did four months ago. And that's, of course, encouraging. Some people are discouraged by this and say this, is, this exposes the bad sides of science. I disagree completely. It's the virtues of science that is demonstrated here, the qualified disagreement. The acknowledged mistakes, you say, ah, yes, my study two months ago pointed in this direction, but actually you now have a better study here. <laughs> and, and let's face it, and let's, let's move forward together. I think it's been a very good lesson for all of us, including us who work with science and college. And I think at least we can agree on that. There's hope for the future and for a better society once we have gotten through this um, pandemic, or at least the worst part of it. I quite agree. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Bye for now. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We hope you enjoyed this episode and would be more than happy if you can help us spread the news about this new podcast. You can find Sverker Selin's recent book, Crisis, From Estonia to Corona, online. If you haven't done so yet, you can also listen to the previous episode where I talked to Ulf Landegian 
professor in molecular medicine at Uppsala University, who is currently developing an antibody test for COVID-19. For the next episode, we have invited Fredrik Schapentier Jungqvist, associate professor in history at Stockholm University and a Pro Futura Fellow here at SCAS, to look back in time at historic pandemics. We hope that you want to join us then as well. Bye for now!